Last week, we added on to our journey through the book of Acts by discussing the concept of inclusion. We were discussing how Jesus opened the door for the inclusion of Gentiles into the promises of the Old Testament and how the followers of Jesus were led op- to open more and more doors to more and more people. We read through Acts chapter 2, which began with the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus' followers in Jerusalem. It continued with the Apostle Peter sharing some good news. The promises of salvation, reconciliation, and victory are being fulfilled through Jesus. And the response to that good news, 3,000 people join the movement. And the chapter ends this way. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Focusing on teaching in the faith community, being excited by supernatural wonders, living in community with every member, being selfless and giving whatever was needed to whomever was in need. Worshiping together, cooking together, eating together. It's a key one. And having more and more people join the movement. The first church community in Jerusalem sounds like the perfect church. In fact, many churches today have focused on this passage as being the model for their church. You'll hear the phrase Acts to Church as a label or tagline or reference in many church descriptions and statements of faith. You realize, however, that as you read through the rest of Acts and then again reading into the lives of the various communities— in the cities of Philippi, of Corinth, Thessalonica, to name three, you realize that Acts 2, 42 to 47 does not describe their churches. In fact, there's a sentiment that exists in this first church here that doesn't exist in others, and that's unity. Over and over, we find Peter, Paul, and other letter writers asking that these other church communities be united. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. From Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one one mind. And from 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Over and over, we read and we find that these churches are falling short of this measure. Because at this point, the churches are struggling with whom to include as their members and with what their members should be believing and practicing, including the church described in Acts 2. I'd like to show you a video now that describes what was going on during this period. According to the book of Acts, Christianity began at a single place, at a single moment in time. Fifty days after the death of Jesus, now known as Pentecost, a miraculous event took place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. That's the picture that we get in Acts. The historical reality is probably uh, much more complex and uh, the uh, uh, Christian movement probably, be, probably began not from a single center, but from many different centers where different groups of disciples of Jesus gathered and tried to make sense of uh, what they had experienced with him and what had happened to him at the end of his uh, public ministry. The Acts account of early Christianity presents a, a very cogent, coherent image of earliest Christianity. When, in fact, the more we find out about early Christianity, the more wild, wildly variegated a phenomenon it appears to be. As far as we can tell, the beginnings of Christianity occurred in many different places, in many different groups. There were wandering charismatics who went around from door to door preaching without an ordinary occupation, depending on people with whom they stayed for hospitality, for food. There were settled groups in little towns. There were uh, radical groups trying to give up ordinary occupations and family life, following the teachings of Jesus. Um, it must have been an amazing mixture, amazingly diverse range. It is clear from the very beginning of Christianity that there are different ways of interpreting the fundamental message. There are different kinds of practice. There are arguments over how Jewish are we to be, how Greek are we to be, how do we adapt to the surrounding culture, what is the real meaning of the death of Jesus? How important is the death of Jesus? Maybe it's the sayings of Jesus that are really the important thing and, and not his death, or not his resurrection. I think we're right to call it the Jesus movement here because if we think of it as Christianity, that is from the perspective of the kind of movement and institutional religion that it would become a few hundred years later, we will miss the flavor of those earliest years of the kind of crude and rough beginnings, the, the small enclaves trying to keep the memory alive. We're hampered by our vocabulary. We know that this group will eventually form a Gentile community and they'll be known as Christians. But this group didn't think that. This group expected Jesus to return and establish the kingdom of God. He is a Jewish Messiah. They are followers of a Jewish apocalyptic tradition. They are expecting the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. It's a Jewish movement. Jewish sect then is a group which sees itself as Jews, recognizes that there are other Jews out there, but claims that those other Jews out there have it all wrong. They don't fully understand what Judaism is all about, and only the members of the sect do. 
Sectarian groups are always in tension with their environment. That tension is manifested in a tendency to want to spread the message out, to hit the road and convince others that the truth is real. Sectarian groups are always in tension with their environments. Remember that point. As we go through Acts and later uh, the Acts of the Apostles, or the letters of the Apostles, we see that despite the call for unity, the churches are struggling with divisive issues. Are non-Jews to be included in this community? How many Jews, how, how Jewish should non-converts uh, be? How many of the Jewish practices should our Jewish converts maintain? If Jesus is returning soon, should we just abandon the ways we live life now and live ascetically, foregoing all the rules and customs that we live by now? Should we abandon our marriages or avoid getting married altogether? Should we prevent the unqualified from leading? And what makes them unqualified to lead in the first place? Who are the itinerant preachers that we should listen to? And who should we avoid? Which version of the good news that we are hearing is the real one? How do we deal with those who are deviating from the norm we've established or who are actively excusing sin? You know, Jesus is taking an awful lot longer than we expected to come back. How should we live if he's going to take even longer to return? These are all very practical questions based on real situations. And we see that as new circumstances arose and people had to figure out how to follow Jesus in these new circumstances, the answers weren't clear. People would have to look at scripture and look at tradition, interpret what was being shared, and then figure out how to apply those interpretations to their current situation. And honestly, it hasn't changed much over the centuries. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, already, it has been already in the ages before us. And when we look back at church history, we can see that many of the issues that we face as a church today, they have an analog in the issues that our predecessors faced centuries ago. And we'll take a look at three of them right now. First, worldliness. When it comes to the fear of worldliness, of being too caught up in the mores and customs of our culture, there are parallels between history and the present. In the first century, when the church was essentially a sect of Judaism, the two questions were, do we include Gentiles in the community? And if so, do they have to convert to Judaism before they can follow Jesus properly? The answer given by God to Peter in a dream was, yes, you do include Gentiles in the community. God did not answer the second question so clearly, however. When Paul concluded that the Gentiles did not have to first become Jewish converts before following Jesus, there was division. Are we abandoning our principles and merely being pragmatic and succumbing to the pressures of this Gentile world by doing this? They actually needed to convene a council of churches to come to a universal decision. And today, a similar situation exists with the issue of homosexuality. Every church community is looking at scripture and historical interpretations regarding this issue and trying to determine, do we include LGBT persons in our community? And if so, do they have to change before they join us? For those of our brothers and sisters who say, no, we do not include them, or yes, we do include them, but first they must change, they offer a familiar reason. We're abandoning our principles and merely being pragmatic and succumbing to the pressures of the world by doing this. Unlike the early church, we have no such universal decision that applies for every church community in the world, much less every church community in a particular denomination. And it doesn't seem like there's one coming. Until recently... 
Whether to include LGBT persons into a community has probably been the most divisive issue the church has faced today. The second point, false teaching. When it comes to the fear of false teaching, these historical parallels exist. For the first six centuries of the church, one of the most divisive issues was the nature of Jesus. Who is he really? Is he God? Is he a human being? Is he both? If so, how is that possible? And how can God be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? After two centuries of consideration, debate, and sometimes violent conflict, it essentially came down to two positions. The orthodox view of Christ, to which almost all communities hold to today, and the Arian and Monophysite views of Christ. The Arian view is that the Son is lesser than the Father, and the Monophysite view is that Jesus was not fully human. He was fully divine, but not fully human. Four ecumenical councils, bringing bishops from across the world, were held over a 500-year period, and each was, pol- was political and contentious. In the first council held in Nicaea, in modern-day Turkey, the Orthodox Bishop Nicholas of Myra struck an opposition bishop in the face. You might know Nicholas of Myra by his more well-known name, St. Nicholas. Yes, the man whose life is the basis for Santa Claus punched the guy in the face. Now, after that council, and after each of the councils, in fact, the Orthodox view was held up as the truth, and the non-Orthodox views were considered false teaching or heresy. And how did the church deal with those who taught heresies? They imprisoned them or exiled them, driving them away from their cities, They burned down their churches. They kicked them out of the church by a process called excommunication. In other words, they told them that their salvation from Christ was rescinded. It was taken away. And that they would go to hell after their death, which they sometimes also brought about by killing them. In today's church, thankfully, we don't go around killing other believers with whom we disagree. But it seems like we do exile and excommunicate those who deviate from what we consider orthodox or correct thought. If you ask a group of Christians what the greatest heresy is in America today, most people will respond, prosperity gospel, which is the teaching that a prosperous life is a divine gift of true faith, while a difficult life is a result of disbelief. While many criticize its proponents, we certainly do not exile or excommunicate those who believe in it. In some Christian circles, however, to teach in favor of evolution or to be unsure about abortion or to include our LGBT persons as part of our community, those are all offenses worthy of damnation. A third point, politicized faith. When it comes to the fear of politicized faith, the historical parallels exist with today. What many people don't realize is that the church has always been political. The hierarchical structure of church leadership, the elders, the bishops, the deacons, those were borrowed from governing bodies of the Roman Empire. There were no women in government leadership, so female leaders in the church were removed. But the upper class and the urban elites found leadership roles within the church because they offered political power. When the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the 4th century, he saw that he could use this influential religion to unite the people under him by providing a common perspective. If there is one God, and if there is one Christ, then certainly there must be one emperor. So he tied the church to the state, and everything was codified. One common creed, one common religious text, and one day of worship. Moved from the Sabbath, Saturday, to the day of the sun. And any dissent in Christianity became a potential threat to the empire, so heretics of the faith were treated as traitors to the state. 
The two major spheres of Christianity from the 4th century until the 12th century revolved around two imperial capitals, Rome and Constantinople. And in the mind of many, the Roman Empire was the civilized light in the dark world. It was synonymous with the kingdom of God on earth. And after Rome fell, Christianity was the dominant ideology. Wealthy families vied to have their members selected as pope because popes control wealth. And the spread of uh, European influence through colonization, trade, and culture was tied to the spread of Christianity and Christian values. Does some of this sound a little familiar? In the United States, we find people of influence and status using their faith, their Christian faith, to gain, gain wealth and power. The nation was founded by Christian men based on Christian values. Legislation is held to Christian standards as our leaders. Every single U.S. president from the 1st to the 45th has been Christian and male, as God intended. Okay, good, you laughed. <laughs> Christian leaders build relationships with government leaders in order to gain influence. Anyone not in line with our national Christian values is considered a potential threat to the state. So increasingly, non-Christians are treated as threats. And in the minds of many, America is the city on a hill the representative of God's kingdom on earth. We can see this level of politicization of faith, not just in the U.S., but in other countries, such as Russia and Uganda. When church and state interact, and one attempts to unduly influence the other, the influence can corrupt both institutions. Right now, our American society is divided in many ways, and the issues that affect American society are reflected in the American church. And just as the church has done through history, we right now, we as a church, face very practical questions based on real situations, and the answers aren't universal. Where is the balance between freedom and security? Where's the balance between justice and mercy? Where's the balance between self-preservation and selflessness? To what extent should we welcome the poor, the widows, and the sojourners? To what extent should we keep them at arm's length? To what extent should they integrate with us and become one of us? And what, to what extent should they be kept apart and remain one of them? Just as our spiritual ancestors had done centuries ago, we Christians have to figure out how to follow Jesus in these new environments. And the answers aren't clear. We, too, have to look at Scripture and look at tradition, interpret what was being shared, and then figure out how to apply these interpretations to our current situation. And we find that we're not in agreement. We are not unified. And so what we do is we try to create distinctions between one group of Christian followers and the other. We follow the example of our more recent ancestors and divide our churches into who we believe is right and who we believe is wrong. We go as far as breaking up into denominations, stating that the gulf in our perspectives is way too wide to cross, and it's better for us to go our separate ways. We even consider leaving our faith, since the faith that we see is not in step with the faith that we believe. The Bible says that we are unified. In Galatians, it says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you, as, as, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is there's no male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once from far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So if the unity, according to this, if the unity already exists as these verses seem to state, then why are we struggling with this? Let's be honest. The church is always going to be divided in some shape or form. Because although we are led and guided by God in the form of the Holy Spirit, the church is still made up of people who will interpret Scripture and the direction of God based on their perspectives, their experiences, their histories, and their cultures. There are always disagreements within the church due to cultural mores, interpretation of Scripture, emphasis on certain parts of Scriptures, and demands of society. These stresses lead to shifts in their practices and teachings and movement in different directions. Sometimes these movements are beneficial to Christianity in the world, and sometimes they're not. The themes that the early church struggled with in Acts are themes that we still struggle with today. The specific issues change, but the themes of inclusion, interpretation, and power remain the same. So, are we all doomed? Should churches across the world place this sign above their doors, abandon all hope ye who enter here? No, we're not doomed. In fact, when you look at the struggles of the early church and the struggles of today, you can say that we're right in line with them. And that's a good thing. The late Anglican theologian Mark Dyer was asked about what was happening in the 21st century uh, to North American Christianity. And his response was, about every 500 years, the church feels compelled to hold a giant rummage sale. In other words, the structures of institutionalized Christianity are broken and discarded so that what is held within can grow in a new direction. Like a crab loses its shell or a snake sheds its skin, the church must break loose from time to time from itself in order to become something new. And historically, there are three results from this. Number one, a new, more vital expression of Christianity is born, freed of the limitations of the previous expression. Number two, the existing expression, the one that remains behind, it reflects on, its new expression, on the new expression that just left it, and it's changed into a pure, flexible, refurbished form. And third, Christianity as a whole expands into new geographic and demographic areas that it was incapable of reaching before. In her book, The Great Emergence, the, the late theologian Phyllis Tickle expounds upon this. Around 500 AD, the church, at this time the Catholic Church, was strongly connected to the state and thus reflecting all the state's excesses, failings, and corruptions in the name of Jesus. Individuals sought to leave behind those failings and connect with God in a pure way, and that was called the monastic movement. It was pioneered by people like Anthony of Egypt, who gave away his earthly possessions and secluded himself away to consider life with God without distraction. The church recognized the reasons for these monks and these nuns to abandon the church uh, that they had, and they believed that these reasons were valid. And so the church addressed its internal corruptions via ecumenical council, which it often does, and education and intellectualism was spurred on. It was said even that uh, so many of these writings and so many of the, the works of ancient Greek philosophers would have been lost if it hadn't been for these monastic movements where people would come and gather these books and write them down and copy them. If it wasn't for these movements, these books might have been lost to us forever. But as that happened, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved.
around 1000 AD, the church attempted to straddle the difference, uh, the difference between its power bases in Rome and Constantinople. The Roman sect claimed that its bishop, or pope, had prime authority based on the words of Matthew 16. And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The Eastern sect claimed that no bishop had prime authority, and the church split into the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And yet, both, both churches grew and thrived. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Around 1500, the Roman Catholic Church excused its excesses, failings, and corruptions as part of doing God's will. It's just the nature of the business. But groups of individuals across Europe, keyed by a German cleric named Martin Luther, abandoned the Catholic Church in favor of a new strain of Christianity, focused on individual faith. And it found many people willing to take part in this new liberalized form. This was called the Protestant Reformation. But soon after, the Catholic Church recognized its failings, instituted changes to deal with them, and found itself focusing more on individual faith itself. This was called the Counter-Reformation. As part of its focus on individual faith, the Catholic Church sent missionaries to every part of the world. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And now, we live in a world filled with denominations. Churches and Christian organizations split by theological and structural differences. If one looks at this as division, then yes, we have fallen painfully short of Jesus' call for unity among us. What if, however, we look at these divisions as necessary creative acts, as responses to God's inspiration? What if each of these denominations is an expression of creativity as people attempt to understand a God beyond understanding? Based on interpretation of Scripture, both now and into the past, what we call tradition, and based on what we're seeing, perhaps this is how God works. Perhaps this is who he is. And perhaps this is how he calls us to join in his work. The common belief about denominations is that they are a necessary evil. Denominations are not God's idea, but man's. And of course, most denominations and church splits are over administrative or divisive social issues that find their way into the theological realm. But what if a denomination is not about division in an organization, but about evolution in a community? What if it's about many people reaching out to God in many different ways and finding that their reaching out is actually a response to God reaching to them? What if it's about division in order to make room for creativity? If you're familiar with the concept of evolution, then you'll recognize that these are all figures of birds. They all have the same common origin and the same basic skeletal and muscular structure underneath. Each of these bird species, however, have different traits and different practices, all to best suit their current environments, be it aquatic, forested, mountainous, arctic, tropical, or temperate. They have been changed by their environments in order to be active and to thrive in them. The graph above illustrates the current formation of the American church according to the theologian Phyllis Trickle. We find four quadrants occupied by different forms of Christianity, each including multiple denominations. And by the way, these are all generalizations. These, these traits exist across many forms, so don't, don't be surprised by this. But at the top left, we have the liturgicals. Those are churches that 
focus on worship through communion and group expression or liturgy. At the top right, we have mainline Protestants who rest in the middle of the theological spectrum, such as Presbyterians and Methodists, and they tend to be focused on outward expressions of social justice. At the bottom left are renewalists, such as Pentecostal churches, which tend to focus on the experience of the Spirit. And at the bottom right are conservatives, such as Southern Baptists, who tend to focus on evangelism and literal interpretation of of Scripture. What has happened in the 21st century is that technology, knowledge, and ecumenical relationship has led to large groups of church communities from each of these different forms, all four sectors, drifting towards each other. And there's a region of blending, as shown by the green areas, where these churches are sharing practices of worship, of social interaction, of individual divine experience, of biblical interpretation, and of evangelical outreach. These churches, who were once very different in form, now resemble one another on the margins in this green, cruciform shape. But by the gravitational and septipedal force of these common experiences, some of these churches begin to grow together, and they form this new group of churches that floats in between all these initial forms, in between denominations even, at the center. They share traits with multiple forms, they borrow styles and methods from multiple forms, and they hold relationships with multiple forms. A church in this cluster may remain remain in its denomination, or it may have no denominational association at all, but is very much a part of all form initial forms and part of the gathering center. And you could say Spark is one of the churches in this gathering center. At the same time, this gravitational force pulls the church inward toward greater commonality. But portions with each, each of the four quadrants are resisting. They're reacting to this movement inwards, and they're fearing that many of the aspects of their initial forms will be lost by this movement inwards. And so they form strong traditional bases at the corners. They're essentially many counter-reformations. And they root their identity in historical and traditional perspectives and practices, and they stand as a clear alternative to what's happening at the center. But this, this, this movement away, also has an effect on the center. Because as these traditional churches on the corners define what they are and what they're not, the churches in the gathering center also become more defined. They become new forms with roots in the traditional communities and branching across margins. They are evangelical, but they're also liturgical and charismatic. They are justice-oriented, but they're also evangelical and Pentecostal. They interpret the Bible literally, but they are also compassionate towards the marginalized and look for the direction of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is happening. And while it's happening, there are these exchanges of ideas, this, this current of ideas that's being flowed, uh, ideas, practices, uh, worship, that are going between every form in every region. In many ways, each of these groups is a product of evolution. Each has grown and changed to meet the demands of the environment. And while they have similar origins and thus are essentially the same at heart, they're very different. Each one is a Christian community, attempting to love God and neighbor to the best of their abilities. And yet, how they are Christian is very different. And in separating and making themselves distinct, perhaps they're making room, merely making room for their unique response to God's call. 
As stated before, if we do consider denominationalism to be an act of creativity, and if each of these denominations is an expression of creativity, an expression of people attempting to understand a God beyond understanding, if this is true, then we have to be on guard against hubris, against selfish pride. Yes, there might be something that God's initiating here that God is inspiring us to do. But it's dangerous to assume that the direction a church takes is automatically God-breathed and God-willed. Churches are composed of people, and people make mistakes, even long-lasting ones. But most of the Christian denominations that have lasted, they have lasted in part because they were willing to admit their faults, reform, and be renewed. They were willing to be corrected and follow God's leading, even if it was in a direction opposite of what it intended. If Archbishop Dyer's theory on change is correct, then we will experience another major division in the church in our lifetimes. But as history has shown, as one part leaves to enact reforms, the remaining part will respond by enacting reforms. It will move in the direction of the part that just left. And more people will be drawn to Christ as a result. It is the evolution of community that began 2,000 years ago. The people and the ideas may change, but the God directing it all remains the same. All of this can be summarized in one sentence, which our teacher and brother, Omer Akhtar, stated three weeks ago. The church is a work in progress. The unity that Jesus and his followers speak of, it does exist. And it's still in development. Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. In John, Jesus says this, the, gore, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And in Ephesians, God's purpose was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I showed some verses previously about unity, and those were all in present tense. They're happening right now. All these verses here, these are in future tense. It's a promise that they will happen. Unity in the church is a work in progress because the church is a work in progress. It's part of the kingdom of God, the already but not yet kingdom of God, the present and still to come kingdom of God. But what about our very mixed up, divided present? Are we supposed to advocate for our preferred form of Christianity, which we believe to be correct, while lovingly critiquing other forms of Christianity, which we believe to be incorrect? I believe yes. Because this is the way Christianity has always been. Iron sharpening iron. It is a diversity of voices in the marketplace of faith, trying to determine God's call amid the noise of interpretation. And it's a place to present our views and share how, in this environment, our views make the most sense. And perhaps sometimes the best way to give voice to our views is to try to make room for them. Whether it realizes it or not, the church reflects the world. And because of this, each of the issues in the church that we see is a form of the societal concern that is taken within the church. Say that again. Because, of, because the church reflects the world, each of the issues that we see in the church is actually a form of something from the outside that has been brought in. God does not call you to leave your problems on the outside. He calls you to bring your problems in here because 
This is where we come together to meet God, to bring our problems to him and to one another and to try to figure them out together. As it's always been, the church is very much a product of its time, which makes total sense because the church is composed of people who fully exist in their time. If Jesus is the head of the church, then right now the body is moving about zombie-like, trying to find its head while moving in the direction it thinks its head was, was heading. And until Jesus returns, we're always going to be struggling. And thank God, because a church that does not struggle with its purpose from time to time doesn't grow. A church that doesn't sometimes go in the wrong directions is one that is not trying to figure out God's way. The unity that we hope for right now, it may not be in the form of common ideologies or common interpretations of Scripture or applications of Scripture or a united front on any issue. The unity that we hope for may be as simple as recognizing that we don't know everything, but God does. And while we're trying to figure out what he wants all of us to do, and what we're trying to figure out how to, how to live this crazy thing called life, we're called to have compassion for one another in our failings, in our mistakes, in our pride. Part of loving God and loving our neighbor includes realizing it could have easily been me, and there but for the grace of God go I. Because, hey, we've all been there, and we'll all be there again. scandals. Uh, and what will it mean for, uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the north may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. The, um, pardon me. Pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> What is this going to be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited in the last six months to a year. Oh, that poor wife. <laughs> so we're called to have compassion because we've all been there. And if, you, if we haven't been there yet, we're going to be there. And so we need to be there for one another. So let's pray together, focus on the one who brings us together. If you would join me. Our Father in heaven, blessed is your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.